0: Hello and welcome to the IQT podcast. I'm Dylan George and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers as a co-host for a special BNEX series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts and what we need to improve these capabilities.
1: Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode.
0: Hello, everyone. My fabulous co host, Caitlin Rivers, and I are joined on the podcast by a wonderful guest. Todd Mostek is the CEO and founder of OmniSci, which is an InQtel portfolio company. And today we are here to get an overview of the company, their technology, and particularly, we would love to learn more about what they are doing to help with the COVID-19 response. Todd, thank you for being here, and we appreciate you taking time to talk to us.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Really excited to be here.
0: So, and as always, Caitlin, it's great to have you on. How are you doing today?
1: Hanging in there. Good to be with you.
0: As we are witnessing with COVID, the COVID-19 response, we see that data are critical for public health. A recent New York Times article spoke about data challenges in fighting COVID-19. In Houston, Texas, cases were surging. The hospital system is being stretched. In fact, the lack of data technologies are slowing the response. Dr. Umer Shah, who's the executive director of Harris County Public Health in Houston, Texas, said the following. He said, picture the image of hundreds of faxes coming through and the machine just shooting out paper. From an operational standpoint, it makes things incredibly difficult. The data is moving slower than the disease. Now, uh, first, we might have to explain what a fax machine is to some of our listeners, which I'm kidding, but not really. But this quote that the data is moving slower than the disease is something that is uh, a really concerning reality. Uh, It's also the driving rationale for this podcast series. So today we're here to explore how data and analytical technologies can be used to transform our ability to respond to the pandemic. And a range of companies and technologies have been very helpful in developing capabilities to understand this and and to respond to to the ongoing pandemic. Uh, We wanted to discuss these efforts and highlight a few. As we mentioned, Todd Mostek from OmniSci is, is with us today.
1: Todd, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and what was the path that convinced you to build Omnisai?
2: Yeah, no, it's a it's a good way to kick off, actually, because it's been an interesting route to where we are today. You know, I think unlike a lot of folks, I didn't start out wanting to do a startup. I didn't even start out wanting to be a technologist. I was uh, in Syria somewhere back, uh, let's see, this is 14, 15 years ago, 2006, 2007, so basically I went to undergrad, UNC, didn't really know what I wanted to do in life, was a anthropology, an econ, double major, math minor. And then, you know, the jobs in front of me were working at a bank. And I said, I want to do something. I'm not sure about this. I need to see the world a little bit. I need to, you know, before I jump in and work for the man, I need to like, you know, know that that's the right thing. So I wanted to get out of Dodge and, you know, say, how do I do this? How do I pay my way? Because I didn't really have any savings. How do I pay my way to, you know, abroad and see the world a little bit more than more than you would just backpacking so randomly one night i was on craigslist and found this job to teach english in syria and it's like sunny syria or something for berlitz which is a a international chain and um you know soon enough much to my parents dismay i was on a, a flight to aleppo syria and this is obviously well before the civil war and such it was quite safe at the time and was kind of parachuted in, didn't really have any foreign friends, and it was interesting, right? It was tough at first, just I was homesick, but got in, fell in love with um, Arabic language and culture and started, well, I taught English, but started learning Arabic, and came back and then was lucky enough to receive a fellowship from the US Department of State to uh, study Arabic intensively for a year at the American University of Cairo in Egypt, and did that, and even by the time I was done, uh, the Arabic was, My Arabic was pretty decent. I worked as a translator for a bit, came back to Harvard, did my master's in Middle Eastern studies, of all things, because I still didn't have a full idea of what I wanted to do with my life, but this was my passion and interest. And right after I came back, the Arab Spring happened. So this was 2011, you know, started in Tunisia, then moved through Egypt, then to Syria and other countries in the Middle East. And, you know, everybody was talking about Twitter as this catalyst, social media in general, but Twitter in particular, as this catalyst for their spring in the sense that people for the first time could easily disseminate information about the protests and the revolutions and what was happening and basically plan logistics, whatnot. And, you know, at the same time, I was like, well, that's true, but this is also an unprecedented source of information on what's happening on the ground. And moreover, what people are thinking Uh, and when they're thinking that and where they are often in the case when these tweets were geolocated, and so I started, um, I did have a bit of a comp sci background. I had always loved programming since I was a kid. Um, started, uh, had a workstation I built to play video games um, during grad school. Uh, started harvesting hundreds of millions of tweets off of Twitter's API. And all of a sudden I had a big data problem on my hands. Because I was trying to analyze this data and to figure out, you know, uh, were people for the revolution against the revolution? Doing a graph problem of who do they follow on Twitter? Do they follow secularists, Islamists, regime politicians? Uh, what they said on Twitter? Um, you know, doing sentiment analysis and discourse analysis on that data, and then geospatial uh, analysis of the demographics of users, like where they would tweet at night, um, and so that would convey whether they were from maybe a rich secular area or a, you know area in the in uh, rural Egypt, and so. You know, what I found immediately was that just the tools I could use off the shelf, like open source databases like Postgres, for example, um, or things I was writing myself in in Python or maybe C, just really weren't up to the job, right? You know, I'm sure if I had access to a bigger cluster, like a big Hadoop cluster, I could have done more. Um, But, you know, with what I had, everything would take hours, if not overnight or days, and often it would run out of memory, it would crash. And basically, I was found wanting, because I had all these burning questions about this data, but the lack of the speed of the hardware and software at my disposal was basically preventing me from getting there. And I think that's what kind of put me on the quest, right? I started using all my electives to take comp sci courses. And the funny thing is, because I was a social sciences, uh, yeah, I had a social sciences concentration, they wouldn't let me take the cool classes, which were like operating systems or ML or something. And so they said, you can take this GPU graphics course. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, bought a GPU to run, uh, you know, some video games. So why not? And I started taking it and got very interested in GPU programming, not only just for visualization, but there was this burgeoning field of using GPUs, video cards, for uh, general purpose compute. Um, And at the time, it was a kind of a niche space. You know, it was NVIDIA now just surpassed, NVIDIA, the leading manufacturer of graphics cards, just surpassed Intel in terms of valuation. At the time it was kind of a sleepy company. GPUs weren't very cool, but I thought they were cool. They had thousands of cores and you could conceivably do a lot with them. So I started on this path and then the next semester I was lucky enough to enroll in the uh, database course at MIT under Mike Stonebraker and Sam Madden, Sam Madden's still on our board. Um, but Mike Stonebraker won the Turing Award. He had done Postgres, Ingress, uh, Vertica, a whole number of database, Tamer, a whole number of database startups. and uh, you know, kind of threw myself into it, got super interested in analytic database technologies. And for my final project for the course in 2012, kind of tried to synthesize everything and said, I think we can leverage the parallel compute power of GPUs or video cards to accelerate not just database operations but the full analytic stack. And so what by that I mean being able to query data quickly, visualize it because they were built to render video games, and then finally uh, speed up machine learning and data science workflows which is principally what I was facing in my thesis research, right? And so uh, put all this together, almost dropped out of school because I got so crazy around this project. I wasn't sleeping, I was just coding on this thing. And you know, it, it, by May of 2012 had this basic, but kind of cool prototype that could take billion row or multi-billion row data sets and query them sub-second in tens or hundreds of milliseconds. And it had a visualization layer. So I had a Twitter demo, um, which we still have today, and you could take, you know, hundreds of billions of tweets and see them on a map and dynamically search it. And so the professors were like, well, this kid's kind of weird. You know, he just came in and wanted to do this thing, but this is cool. We should let him give him a shot at continuing this. And they actually, um, they got me a fellowship at MIT CSAIL uh, in the database group. and Where I worked there is uh, about a year focusing on this and building this out and doing research on GPU acceleration of analytics. Um, and it, during that time, because I had a visual demo, and I think it kind of struck people, they would chop me up there in front of their industrial liaison group. And there's also Lincoln Labs there. So met both commercial and federal folks who had big data problems. And they would say, you know, man, you know, I would kill to have my queries run that fast. I have to wait hours or days, just like I did during my thesis research. So, you know, all of that kind of one day had a light bulb moment and said, you know, I think there's something here. It's not just my pain point. People are really struggling. You know, there's this whole promise of big data, but it's very underwhelming in it's reality and people aren't getting the insights they need, at least not in the time frame that they, they have to get them. And so it led me to spin it out as a company.
0: What's the range of customers that you're working with? You're working with uh, commercial entities and you're working with the federal government, correct? Isn't that, isn't that correct?
2: Yeah, the, Dylan, that's absolutely correct. We um, One of the cool things about the technology is we've found that it has wide appeal with any, for anyone that has big data sets that needs quicker or deeper understanding. Uh, so whether that's in the federal space, um, we work across the, the U.S. government, people are struggling with big data, um, but also in the commercial space, uh, we have a growing presence in telco in particular. I mentioned Verizon is one of our first customers, but uh, we're deployed a... Tens of telcos worldwide, um, but things like oil and gas, retail, CPG, um, you know, even in uh, the gaming industry, uh, anybody who has large data sets is a good candidate for our
0: platform. And and I think I saw on your website as well that you're working with Pfizer as well. Is that correct?
2: Correct. Yeah. So uh, Pfizer, actually, the the use case is around drug trials. It's actually a big data problem because of all the you know all the random things, and they want to actually look across trials. And then also, uh, a big problem for them is how to select you know, what is the right lab to actually do the trial, and where they're most likely to get the best participants that they need that match their criteria. And it's actually a big data science problem. I had no idea about this until we dived in with them, but it's pretty
0: cool. Nice. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, at a high level, you talk about your technology as enabling massively accelerated analytics and data. In, in enabling this interactive query and visualization, and and obviously throughout your discussion here about the Twitter and some of the other aspects that you've been using with social media, there's a, an explicit sort of location component associated with all of this. And the other aspect of it, though, too, is these billions of records. I mean, re- using bi- real big data versus just you know, something that you would, you find in an Excel spreadsheet. Um, So how did you transform this technology into the company and how did that happen? Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, again, it wasn't a straightforward path. My friend who I knew from grad school and I said, we're doing this as a company. I stayed on at MIT for a while, but then we finally at the beginning of 2014 took the big leap into the unknown, had saved up a little money, had got a $10,000 loan from our parents and said, hey, let's see if we can do this. And we talked to a lot of investors, VCs. It wasn't easy, right? Because we had no brands or like they didn't know us, right? We were just weird kids. And you know, frankly, I thought I was gonna have to go back and get a real job, either beg Sam for a position back at MIT or something else. But we were lucky enough to enroll in the, uh, or to submit for this NVIDIA, or the graphics card manufacturer, early stage challenge award. And what was appealing about it is there was a 100K prize on it, cash, no strings attached. And so we submitted for it. And then there was like four, we got to the finalists and they had us out there to um, Santa Clara for their GTC conference. And somehow, despite all the odds, we thought we were against these behemoths of like 15 people. And we were two and a half, my co-founder and I and the guy who's working half time for MIT. Somehow this caught the judge's imagination. We, we won, we had 100K I still met, I still remember when that check hit the our bank account with like a shocking <laughs> amount of money. We could never spend this you know those are the, those are the episode. now I look at our burn right now, but uh you know it was it was cool, so you know we got this and then a lot, that allowed us to hire a few people and we moved um, fairly quickly afterwards to the Bay Area. Not sure there was a deep reason behind besides we both watched social network and we thought that 's what all the cool kids did. But um went out to the Bay Area, and my wife was sick of the, the cold in, in Cambridge. We just had our first kid. And so went out to the Bay Area and, you know, uh, started building. And it wasn't easy, right? But uh, we started getting some uh, early customers. Verizon Wireless became an early customer of ours. Uh, we worked with a lot of social media company and, uh, you know, started building product and hiring good engineers and kind of one foot in front of the other kind of thing.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I, I think that uh, your wife and my wife would probably be good friends because she uh, explicitly forbade me from applying when I was doing my PhD. Um, she forbade me from applying to University of Michigan and Cornell because they were way <laughs> too far north. <laughs> you just have
2: to do the summer sessions in Ann Arbor. Right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, no, it was nice. Go yeah, ahead, but Kate, there is nice, but um, I do miss Cambridge
1: a lot. Really interesting background, uh, but I'd like to hear more about what OmniSci does as a company. What what sort of services do you provide?
2: <laughs> sure, yeah. So you know, fundamentally, uh, we're a product, you know, uh, company, an analytics product company. Our mission statement, and I think this captures it fairly well. You know, we put some thought into this. You know, a lot of companies have these kind of fluffy mission statements. Ours is to make analytics instant, powerful, and effortless for everyone. And what kind of between the lines you read that the status quo is not that, right? We've made some progress in the you know, seven, eight years since I started working on this, but still really people face formidable challenges when they try to get insights, particularly out of big data sets, and particularly, Dylan, as you were alluding to, when there's a heavy geospatial component. Um, traditional BI, business intelligence, uh, GIS, geographic information systems like ESRI, or data warehouses just really aren't built to provide interactivity at scale. And so that's where we excel. Well. The speed at scale, allowing like the human and the loop to work at the speed a human can work at, right? And the human visual cortex is the, one of the most powerful processing systems in the universe, as far as we know, at least. And, you know, giving them power to slice and dice their data set, find anomalies, correlations. But it's not just visualization, they have full SQL under the hood. The core of it is a, a SQL system, so they have the power to actually do uh, SQL queries of the data and then plugging in and actually speeding up the data science piece. So if they find something interesting visually, then they might want to build a model around that data, which happens also typically run very well on GPUs. So we call that like, um, you know, con- converged analytics, right, where you can go through all these modalities. You know, people normally are pretty siloed, like the GIS guys using Esri, the BI guys using Tableau, somebody's hacking on queries in Teradata or something, and then you have the guy in his Jupyter notebook doing data science workflows and they're not really communicating, there's a huge amount of friction in moving the data between these different platforms. And so we aim to kind of provide a converged solution where it's an open platform of our systems, open source, speak standard APIs like SQL, but where people can kind of get the different views of the elephant uh, with a single pane of uh, glass.
1: And as you know, Dylan and I think a lot about public health and how these new data technologies can really improve public health practice. How have you been thinking about that, particularly as it relates to covid nineteen?
2: Yeah, so you know covid nineteen I have to say was um, it's, i know it's been it's been a crazy time for for everyone, but immediately, and it wasn't just me, there was almost a grassroots effort at the at our company to use the power of our platform for good, right? you know immediately people were saying, well, there's a lot of data to bring to bear, even the just the simplest stuff that Johns Hopkins was putting out, but quickly. There was uh, genomics data that was being put out and other sources like location data, social media data, being able to kind of synthesize all these data sources for better understanding of the epidemic to be able to kind of predict the spread. And so people could do logistics planning, supply chain planning, and then finally, like how do you break the chain of transmission, which is what we've kind of dived deeper and deeper into over the the months uh, that followed the, the initial outbreak.
0: And so like with the mobility data, I mean, can you give us an example of how you were able to use your analytics platform to even just scrutinize the mobility data to help us understand how people were adhering to social uh, distancing or not in an example? Just walk us through how it was used for, for that kind of data.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the first things about this mobility data is that it's massive. Right. I think we work with a few partners in the space and the partnerships have deepened with some of the work we're doing together with them around COVID-19. Typically, it could be many billions of points a day. Right. And if you're looking at the progression of a pandemic, you know, worldwide over you know, even six months, it could be half a trillion or more data points just for one provider. Right. And that doesn't that's not even bringing to bear other data sets you might want to pull in like social um, social data, for example. And so one of the things that was quickly clear to some of our partners is that a system like OmniSci was really valuable because two things, you know, A, we could do the speed at scale piece, but two, the data was, you know, intensely geospatial, right? And the patterns you wanted to uncover were fundamentally geospatial. So like you said, one of the things, the first things that we did was just more descriptive, you know, as soon as kind of felt like in February, early March in the country, everybody was kind of like, oh, it's never gonna come here. This is not a problem. People are going about their business. And there was that like week in like mid-March, I think, when, you know, the numbers started skyrocketing and everybody had their oh crap moment. And they started locking things down first in California and then elsewhere. And so we started using the data to understand like how people were social distancing, how they were sheltering in place, how that was changing by geography. One of the first things that was readily apparent is that even despite even if you fix policies like two places that have the same policy around shelter in place, they could have vastly different levels of adherence to it. So we found that the South Southern US, for example, just throughout the end the pandemic has lagged the rest of the country in terms of adherence. You know, people are traveling out more, they're going to malls more, going to bars now more, which has been in the news. And so that was really interesting. And yeah, you know, that was just the start. And then the question started coming in about how does that correlate with the actual spread? Can we do anything predictive in terms of you know how do the patterns of movement actually correlate with uh, the spread of COVID? And so we started getting some good data on that and we started pulling in things like weather data. Um, you know, actually humidity seemed to have in all our models uh, a somewhat dampening effect on the on the spread of the on the spread of COVID, but not huge, right? And obviously look at what's happening in Florida now. And so we tried to do predictive predictive things. And then it got even deeper where we were actually looking at kind of contact tracing or hotspot analysis.
0: Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the contact tracing sort of capabilities that you've developed and how, um, what kind of data sources have you all been pulling into your system and analyzing?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So first off, I would say, I I don't think there's any replacement for human contact tracing, right? Like these departments that these, you know, state departments of health are setting up to actually call people and do, you have to pound the ground and actually talk to people and figure out who they've been in contact with. I think that digital contact tracing or using data to do it can augment it in various ways. You know, I think the thing to realize is that for mobile location data, you're not going to get 100% coverage of people movement in, in the U.S. or elsewhere, for that matter. I know some countries are actually using mobile location data from actual cell phones from the providers, and that gets you much closer to 100%, but, you know, that's been kind of off the table for understandable reasons from the beginning of the pandemic. So for us, there's, there's interesting use cases, especially when it comes into population movement between regions, and kind of seeing, okay, well, likely New York is getting its influx of, you know, COVID-19 or coronavirus from Europe, which actually became, uh, I think, proven, you know, most of that was coming from disease transmission was coming from Europe, and then it started spreading, the community spread. And then I think the bigger thing though that we found a key use case was actually hotspot analysis. Um, you know, So one of the things you can do with this data, and we're obviously very sensitive to privacy concerns around this data. So everything we've been doing has been, yes, there is individual IDs and data there, but it's all rolled up. Because ultimately the public health department doesn't care about what one person is doing. They care about is a certain department store or a certain theme park or a certain bar a conduit for the spread of the disease. So we basically look at, you know, one of the things you can do is because you have location data, you can look at hospital loads, and you know, you can actually correlate that to the. Most of the states are actually publishing their own data around hospital visits or hospital patients for COVID nineteen. So you can actually build a model correlating that, and especially as the pandemic has progressed, people have stopped visiting the hospitals for the most part. For anything elective or anything that's absolutely not a hot button emergency. And so you can have a reasonable amount of, if somebody's in the hospital suddenly for days, there's a fairly high probability, at least in key outbreak areas, that they're a COVID-19 patient. And so if essentially what you can do is, you can backtrack from there and find patterns of like, wow, okay, disproportionately, you know, a lot of these hospital patients were at a certain restaurant, a certain bar, a certain you know park, certain mall, and that really aids um, state and local officials in figuring out, okay, we got a problem here. People aren't adhering to social distancing in this place. Or, um, you know, it basically allows them to, to kind of intervene and hopefully stop yeah. the change.
0: And have you been working with any particular public health agencies or jurisdictions and trying to help them use this information more effectively?
2: Yeah, so I can't mention the actual names. I don't think yep. I Totally understand. Um, you're particularly working with one state. Now I will be mm-hmm. completely honest, there's been some trepidation about this data in particular, I think in the U S and I, I think for very good reason, people are concerned about privacy rights. And although this data has been used for a long time for all sorts of things from ad tech to hedge funds, buying it for to retailers trying to plan where to put their next door, they're looking at foot traffic or actually, um, state departments of transportation use it so they can kind of measure traffic flow you know, without actually having meters or whatever they would need. You know, I think people are concerned about how it can be misused, which is completely understandable. So after our initial conversations, there was a ton of early interest. It became clear that we actually had to figure out ways to give people the power of this data, which includes being able to do things like cohorts, which do require some anonymized ID. However, you know, basically, protecting the data from like, again, nobody needs the individual data points of where somebody went on a Saturday, but rolling it up and aggregating it in a statistical way that protected people's privacy, but a lot of people still to get these policymakers to still get these insights. And so I think that's finally, as we figured that out, that's where I think we were finally connecting with clear need, but there are concerns about privacy and um, we found ways to mitigate some of those concerns. I think that's falling on more receptive ears now. Right. Nice. So
0: what sorts of things are you working on next, COVID-related or otherwise?
2: Yeah, one of the interesting things, you think of state uh, departments of health, we found across the federal government, there's a lot of interest, obviously, of the CDC and FEMA, um, but even the Department of Defense is working, uh, you know, National Guard is helping with uh, COVID response, right? So there's a number of different agencies uh, that have shown interest almost more than the state health departments. That we're working with now. So that's become a big area of, uh, of focus for us. You know, I also think that, you know, say that some of the COVID-19 use cases are just illustrative for how can we protect privacy while allowing, for example, a retailer who might want to understand what's my customer base look like? What cohorts are they from? What age groups do they visit their competitors? And again, they're not, unless they're doing ad targeting, you know, they don't really care about who the individual is. But giving them these insights at scale is really valuable for them. So I think it's unlocked a lot of other very related use cases.
0: Yeah, cool. So if people are interested in learning more about you, I mean, because fundamentally you're terribly interesting in how you actually ended up where you are right now, it's a very non-direct way of getting into developing a company, which is really fascinating in and of itself. So if people are interested in learning more about you or your company and your, your technology, how would they be able to get a hold of you
2: yeah absolutely so we're um, we're on the on the web right Omnisci.com, com, i.com and you know i might also invite folks to check out our uh, interactive demos so if you go to the top under learn i think there's demos and you'll see our covid demos they're not using the location data they're publicly uh, the published data like the johns hopkins data i think we're going to put the new york times county data up soon we have a live interactive tweet map. We have a number of other things like AIS data, so you can see like 12 billion ships, in uh, you know interactively, and you can uh, dive into that. And then also our YouTube page, and so we have a lot of COVID-related demos of things that we couldn't really put on the public internet, but you can actually get a sense of what we're doing, even like the meatpacking plants and the outbreaks there. We have all use case around that.
0: Yeah, no, I have to. I have to. I have to foot this whole idea so, to the demos that you put on your website. It's like I didn't see them when I first went to your website, but after somebody pointed them out to me, they're they're very engaging and very uh, compelling. So I, I completely agree with people should take a look at those. Yeah. So uh, Todd, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, thank you for taking the time to tell us more about your company and your technology and specifically about what you're doing to help with COVID-19. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Uh, be safe and be kind. Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the B Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting series. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on Bnext, visit www.bnext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessin and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care.